I wasn't quite sure what to expect with the amazing TV presenter, environmentalist and modern day adventurer, Ben Fogel. He has so many strings to his bow, but it was a really interesting conversation. I mean, we managed to get into subjects that I was only talking to Frank about first thing this morning, about the polarising world that we're living in, um, how we're not really set up for adventure. Do we take enough risk in our lives? So many things. And I came away definitely wanting to climb Everest. It definitely left me feeling that anything is possible. And we slightly got tongue-tied. And, and then we started saying, well, you know, imagine if I wanted to go to the moon, Holly. And actually, it could be possible. Maybe one of your listeners wants to give me £50 million and I'll go to the moon. So if anyone has got a spare £50 million quid lying around, know that Ben wants to go on a bit of a another dimension adventure. Anyway, so much to be taken out of this podcast, some really beautiful moments. And certainly the place that Ben has in my heart is now burning strong. What a gentleman, what a journeyman. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006 I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, Ben. I'm so sorry that we're not actually meeting in person. We're in lockdown number three. Is this the longest time that you've been caught in four walls? <laughs> I've kind of approached this like an inverted adventure. <laughs> I've never spent so much time. This is the longest time I've ever spent with my wife. I think it's the longest time I've ever spent with my children. And it's the longest time I've ever spent not traveling. And it's the longest time I've ever spent indoors. And by the way, I've still managed to get out and, and about. But it's it's been extraordinary, hasn't it, for everyone. But I have sort of embraced this as I would an adventure. And I've tried to make the most of it. And I've tried to see the sunny side rather than the gloomy side. Has it forced you to sort of take a moment? I know for myself, I've, I've been able to sort of look at the bigger picture rather than just being always on it and in it. I've sort of been able to slow down a bit. Has that been the same for you? I mean, I've been extolling the virtues of slowing down for years and years while not actually doing it myself. Uh, <laughs> yes, so I know I, that. <laughs> I found myself forced 
to just step back a little bit. And I think we all needed that. You've just mentioned, you know, the children going back to school has been a shock to the system. Alarms suddenly going off. For the first time in months and months, we actually had to set alarms because we've all got used to sleeping a little bit more, which nature, as we'll get onto later, is integral to who I am and, and the wilderness is integral to who I am. So I'm actually a firm believer at living with the beating rhythms of the season. So for me, wintertime is kind of a time for hibernation anyway. And we have almost been given free license to do that. So I've kind of used it, I suppose, as a sort of an experiment. And I think a lot of people needed this pause. Mm. They needed to step back. They needed to reflect. I couldn't agree with you more. Okay, well, let's go back to the beginning and talk about your childhood because you had a very happy and colourful one. Your mother was an actress, your father was a vet and used to look after the exotic pets at the department store Harrods, which must be the coolest thing when kids asked you, what does your dad do? That sort of beats everybody. You grew up in London with two sisters. You lived above your father's veterinary clinic. You had dogs and wonderful creatures, an African parrot. And I've actually got, I'm just going to show you what's on top of my, uh, oh, my computer. I have birds everywhere. I'm a crazy bird lady. Um, tell me, what was it about your childhood? Because I've read that you said it potentially gave you confidence to maybe believe in yourself. And, and what an amazing thing to have as a young child? It was a tale of two worlds, to be honest, Holly, that on one hand, I had this really beautiful, idyllic childhood. I kind of equate it to Dr. Doolittle, but we didn't have giant snails. We, you know, it, it was <laughs> There were animals everywhere and it was really happy. And I'd come home and I'd have tea with Michael Caine, who meant nothing to me. He was just a work colleague of mum's. But <laughs> So the house was filled with lots of eccentric actors and actresses. It was full of animals and it was full of a lot of love. So on one hand, that gave me the confidence to be me. Mm. You must remember being being mm. picked up by your mum every day from school with a different wig on. Her, not me, by the way. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, in a different character. One day she was Irish, the next she was American, then she was suddenly Welsh. One day she was blonde, then she was a brunette. It took my childhood to a different level, I suppose, and gave me a confidence yeah. that you could do that. But on the other hand, I wasn't academic. I failed all my exams. It meant that what I got in one hand was taken away with the other mm. because it that actually destroyed some of my confidence because I, I had no sense of belonging. I had this little world that was my family, which was my everything. And that's probably why family is still now, without doubt, the most important thing in my life. But back then it was the same. And yet I, I had zero confidence when it came to sport and school. I hated school absolutely hated it. And mainly because I just, I didn't have a sense of belonging. So I think it was a collision mm. of these two different worlds that kind of created this really weird journey that I've been on ever since. And it's interesting because I've also um, saw that you lived in London, but your father was Canadian. So you spent most of your summers in Canada with your grandparents in this cabin in the lakes. And I, I can almost picture it now, the young Ben, you know, building rafts, having picnics. It sounds absolutely beautiful and so free. A contrast, I suppose, from being a kid in London and growing up. You know, I, I can see what you're saying about your two worlds colliding in terms of it being in London, but then there was this other part, wasn't there? Did you think that this gave you the taste for adventure? I think it did. And I think this two worlds has followed me to this very day because I do live in two completely distinct and very different worlds. There's home, 
really nice house. I love collecting stuff. I'm a prolific magpie. I go to antique markets. <laughs> I buy things from small traders. I love all of that. And yet for eight months of the year, when we're not in the year of pandemic, for eight months of the year, I'm living in hammocks and tree houses and caves and boats. I'm living a kind of hand-to-mouth existence with off-the-grid wild folk all around the world. And I suppose if you look at my childhood, on one hand, it, it was kind of gritty and urban in London. We didn't have a garden in our house. Dad used to do the barbecue on the street. When we'd walk the dogs, they would get little black marks on their heads from crouching down beneath the exhaust pipes of cars. You know, it was gritty and urban. And then I'd have these extraordinary summers, exactly as you just imagined. They were really kind of yeah. idyllic. They were swallows and Amazons. Mm. They were the quintessential image of what a childhood sh should be. And I think I've loved that juxtaposition ever since, because I think you need one to remind yourself of the other. Mm. And if we take this to a bigger level that I'm sure we'll get onto later, if you look at sentiments and emotions in life, I'm always described as like a Labrador. I'm perpetually happy. But if I'm to be honest, I, I'm not. I mm. still, I have my dark days, my down days, my the days where I can't, I don't really want to get out of bed. Mm. But you need to have those. Mm. You need to have the, the mm. white to appreciate the black. And, uh, and I've mm. always, I think throughout my life, I have been attracted to extremes. And I think that has been my main motivating drive. Yeah, that's interesting. The psychological extremes almost as much as sort of adventure. You just touched on that your schooling, you didn't like school, you weren't academic, you weren't sporty, you've even gone as far to say you, you weren't popular. You went to boarding school in Dorset. But you've also said that you actually were shaped as a person there. It's quite interesting. You know, I've spoken to quite a few people who were sent away to boarding school. And actually, if I'm honest with you, nearly all of them have hated it. Tell me why you think it shaped you. It's interesting you, you put it that way, because I've probably used the wrong word already in this podcast when I said I hated school. I didn't hate school, actually. I hated academia. Okay. I hated sport. I hated the contents mm -hmm. of school. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think what's important to say is I went to many different schools. I went to about six or seven. I couldn't settle in. My parents tried to experiment sending me to a French school, the French Lycée in London, and it didn't work. Listen, we could go on for hours. I'm not going to bore you with the minutiae of detail, but eventually I did go to a boarding school. I wasn't sent away to boarding school, but I went to a boarding school in Dorset, and it was without doubt the making of me. Now, I still didn't like the academia, and I didn't like yep. the sport, and I didn't like the pressure of childhood friendships when I didn't have a sense of belonging, but I loved everything else. <laughs> I loved being in the countryside. I made friends for life. The teachers were extraordinary. So actually, again, we're kind of coming back to the tale of these two worlds. There were, there were two extremes there. The academics, which I just never excelled at. And I was always going to fail, to be honest. And I know that sounds really defeatist, but I think some people are born with a brain that can do one thing and other people are born with hands that can do other things. I, mm. And some people have both. Yeah. I just didn't. Yeah. But it was the making of me because it forced me out of the comfort of my family bubble. We talk about bubbles now, but it really was. It was my safety place. My parents, my sisters, my dogs, my parrots, the home, the extended family, the Michael Caines. They, they were my <laughs> safe place where I could be me. It didn't matter that I had spots. It didn't matter that I failed my exams. It didn't matter that I didn't like football. It didn't matter that I wasn't good at rugby because I could be me. And going away to school, that was all stripped away. And I suddenly had to stand on my own two feet. And I would 
rise or fall by my own decisions. And for me, that was the most important lesson in my life because I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but I think I'd still be living at mum and dad's house if I, <laughs> if I hadn't gone off there. <laughs> well, you certainly did, you know, you did fly the nest, didn't you? Because you took a gap year when you finished school. How old were you when you did that? I was 18. And, and 18. it really was a gap. You know, this was not, you know, people talk about the gap year and, you know, you're, you've been to private school and mum and dad give you some money and you go off to Thailand to lie on the beach. <laughs> Mine was a bit more gritty than that. You know, I, I went to South America. I lived with a family in Ecuador. I had not lied, but I'd exaggerated on my application form that I spoke Spanish. I had planned to speak Spanish by the time I got there. It, I, I never got around to it. So I found myself, you know, on the other side of the world in a country I knew nothing about, living with a family who didn't speak a word of English, doing various jobs. I was helping out in an orphanage. You know, that was a baptism of fire, suddenly seeing children that actually they just, when I say an orphanage, it, it was actually just a, a kind of shelter home. So many of these children were sleeping on the streets and would come in fleetingly for food. And and, and that was a real wake-up call to, to just how lucky I was. I think for the first time I realised that I really had been blessed in life with mm -hmm. access to the schooling and the health that I had in this country. It was quite a profound year, that, because it was, I think it was it built on the foundations of what I learned at school. And I think, although it was serendipitous, it was the start of the rebuilding of that early shattered confidence because I love travel. I love the excitement of it. You know, I can see the map on the wall behind you and, and yes. uh, I'm obviously looking at you, Holly, but I can also, <laughs> I'm seeing all these countries, most of which I've been to actually. And I do, ever since I was a child, I look at maps and it just gets me excited. And I was listening to something on the radio today that was talking about the pandemic. And it was talking actually about this thing I'd never heard of before, that actually one of the remedies for depression, and I, I don't have depression, by the way, I've, I've had periods of darkness, but I would definitely, it couldn't be described as depression. That would be disrespectful to those that really have. But one of the remedies is travel. Mm. And it suddenly, it, it occurred to me, yeah, of course, that's why I think partly why I am a sunny, happy person, because travel, I get the same feeling traveling as I do going for a run. Yeah. I get the same feeling traveling as I do having a glass of wine. Mm. It gives mm. me this kind of this rush of excitement, just the thought of going traveling actually sends all the hairs on my arm standing upright because it's what keeps me alive. And I think that year away was the foundations of all of that. Because you returned home, didn't you, to study Latin American at uni? Fleetingly. I came back for about a month. I went to the University of Central England, where I lived in a house below Spaghetti Junction. <laughs> and I lived in a room with no windows. And I'd gone, you know, I, had, I was wearing the, the hippie trousers. My hair was shoulder length. It, it had beads in it. You know, I, I had become <laughs> the gap year hippie. And then I found myself, no disrespect to Spaghetti Junction, but it's not... It just felt a bit dull living in a room with no windows beneath a motorway, having just come back from this excitement of, yeah. of Latin America. And, and I, so I quit. I, I left. And that actually has probably been part of a motivator in my life as well, because it was a continuation of failure. Mm -hmm. I've already mentioned multiple schools, and now I couldn't even stay at university and it was another failure but I did I went back to Latin America and obviously it wasn't nearly as good as the first year because I was trying to chase what I'd had before and what I had before was was about the people and it was about the time in my life and although it was great that second year 
I didn't recapture what I hoped that I would. It's interesting for any young people. You know, I've got a 16-year-old son and, you know, I always talk to him about the fact that, you know, we can't connect the dots. But life does have a way of putting you on a path. And in a way, for you, that moment, that time, that love of travel, this experience that you've had, had a way of showing you what potentially your future would be. It was interesting because you joined the Royal Naval Reserve, but you decided that wasn't for you. You finished your degree, you took a job as a picture editor of Tatler magazine. Is that right? I had Mm -hmm. a short spell at Condé Nast as well. Mm -hmm. I was in those Condé Nast lifts. All Um, All the best people have have done <laughs> done time at Condé Nast. It wasn't necessarily for me. I did find it, but, you know, it was an experience. And you then applied to take part in this pioneering TV show called Castaway. Now, I remember this and I loved it, but my goodness, it is so different to what things are today. Just tell us all, just remind us what this is, because, you know, there was no voting and there was no money unheard of now, isn't it? It's got a pureness to it. Well, it was, so we're talking 21 years ago. It was 1999. Yeah, oh my God. And uh, I'm feeling very old now. The BBC wanted to celebrate the millennium with this groundbreaking TV experiment and a whole new genre of television was born. So that was arguably the very first reality show ever. It was pre-Big Brother or X Factor or Made in Chelsea, The Only Way is Essex. All of those would come much later. Because it was kind of a pioneering show, it also meant that none of us applied to be on it for fame and fortune. Mm-hmm. Like you've already said, there yeah. was none of us were paid to be there. We had to volunteer for a year. A lot of people forget two things. One, that it was a whole year. In fact, 13 months we were marooned on an island in the Outer Hebrides. But also, um, we were there voluntarily. We couldn't earn any money. There was no prize money. There was no winner. There was no voting off. It was just an experiment to see if we could create a living community from scratch. There were kids there. The youngest was two. Uh, there were families. There were couples. I was there individually. And it was, again, I, I kind of don't want to sound too cliche, but it was another building block. Yeah. If you imagine these blocks in the rebuilding and the rebirth of my confidence, it was another building block. And that year was amazing. We filmed most of it ourselves. It, ha- it, did, it had a kind of naivety to it. Actually, Big Brother hit the screens halfway through and the BBC obviously wanted to try and keep up with ratings so a bit of the the way the show was presented changed after six months it became a bit more tabloid and I don't say that in a negative way but yeah it what had started as as very much an academic broadsheet type of show soon transcended so I am kind of saying it kind of went down a little bit into more of a red top sort of sensational who was kissing who and going more into the emotions of interrelations rather than just the beauty of living like Robinson Crusoe. But it, it was an amazing year and it was hard to leave, believe it or not, even though we had no connection to the outside world. Coming back to London, in my case, after that was really, really hard. One of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, actually. It's, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? It's actually quite beautiful. I, I wish this would happen again. You know, I love the idea that you filmed each other, that it was actually self-creation. You know, you, you had one luxury item, didn't you? And you took your Labrador Inca with you. What was a memory that you take away from that? You know, because I'm going to go on to actually what it was like when you came home. But what was something that has stayed with you? I think just 
slowing down. It was yeah. it was kind of a year of lockdown before lockdown. It was living at the pace of nature. It was living at the pace of the landscape that we were sharing rather than living against it, rather than going against the grain. And it sounds like I'm against commercialism and materialism in the current mm -hmm. world. I'm not. I fully embrace it. I've got businesses. I love supporting other businesses. I love what you've done. I love championing people. I, I like doing different things. But I'm also aware that we all need to kind of just be a bit more thoughtful with our consumption and the footprints that we're leaving. And on that island, we left a minimal footprint. You know, we, we ate exactly what we grew. Mm -hmm. We had a hydroelectric dam to, and a wind turbine for the limited energy that we needed. It was literally hand to mouth. There was no excess. There was no flab on it whatsoever. And it was just a very beautiful experience. And my, what I take away from it is the island. To this day, the Outer Hebrides remain probably my favorite place on earth. And for me, just having the luxury of spending a whole year in this beautiful place slowing down is probably what has stayed with me ever since. We're working with our partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. So every week we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey covering a whole range of topics. In last week's Business Pharmacy, we reflected on the past year in lockdown and those who have taken the leap and started their own businesses, despite the challenges this year has presented. Here I'm talking to Sophia of Sourdough Sophia about her experience having started and scaled a business in lockdown. I just jumped right in. And I think that sometimes you have to outweigh the risks or benefits you're going to gain and just jump for it. I think and that's what I did, basically. I just went for it. You did. <laughs> and, and it always, when anyone says something like that, it reminds me of Sahar Hashimi, founder of Coffee Republic, who yeah. says, leap yeah. and the net will catch you. Yes. Because that is the thing that we've just got to do. You leapt. And actually yeah. the community, your brand, your passion, yeah. all those things has actually caught you. What's one, <laughs> one the overarching thing that you've learned so far this year, you would say? I'd say... Never give up. Never, ever let anyone tell you that what you are doing isn't a good idea. You believe in the idea, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Because they will come to you, they will try and beat you down, and they will try and say, oh, but what if, and haven't you thought about, don't listen, just do your thing. Yeah. Don't listen to them at all. That's the one thing I've learned. And I actually have had the people telling me, you shouldn't be moving into the space. It's too small. You're not going to make enough money. I made twice what I thought I was going to make. So yeah. here I am. For the latest lessons, advice and insights, join me every Wednesday at midday live on my Instagram as we tackle a different area of business. With a continued commitment to empower you, Dell are giving away a tech in a box every week. For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co, where you'll also find loads of tangible advice on everything from marketing to brand and HR, all thanks to Dell. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. You basically got propelled, didn't you, into the public eye. And I can only imagine after a sort of a year living with these 35 other people in this remote Scottish island, there must have been an enormous sort of culture shock. Tell me, was it hard to adjust? 
It was. I mean, imagine going from this isolation of this island, wind in your, you know, every day there was a wind going over my ears, fresh air, just the 36 of us. And then suddenly being in central London where my face was on the front of magazines and newspapers, where there were paparazzi outside my house. I was back at mum and dad's by the way by then. <laughs> and it was just so overwhelming because not only had I lost my anonymity, it wasn't something I'd planned for, but it also wasn't completely alien to me because I'd grown up with my mother having paparazzi following her. But mm -hmm. what was very strange is I certainly hadn't gone on that experiment to achieve that. It was luck, I suppose, if you call it luck. I say I use the word luck because I was able to harness it and use it to create mm -hmm. the career that I've done ever since. Everything was overwhelming after that. All the smells, the food was too rich. And I felt like I was suffocating. And it took a long time. I, I definitely, again, we talk about these kind of dark periods. I had some very dark periods then when I was lost. Mm. I, I couldn't see where I was supposed to go. I found the shallowness of reality fame really difficult to live with. And when I say that, I mean, everyone knew who I was. And I'm, as I've said, you know, I, I suddenly my face was on all these papers, but there was no substance to it. I wasn't, mm. I wasn't famous mm. because I'd just invented a cure for COVID. I wasn't famous because I had won the World Cup. I was famous because my face had been on people's TV screens for a year and they thought I had a funny accent and a nice dog. And that was it. Mm. It, it was very shallow. And, and I think, again, the motivator that has has pushed me ever since to, to achieve more and to, to keep myself going. And by the way, you know, I don't, I mean, it sounds like I'm, well, I am talking about myself, so I probably am bigging myself it, up It's all now, about but, you. But it's I don't, all about you. <laughs> well, I don't like to big myself up, but honestly, if you say what's one of your proudest achievements, I think it's probably just the fact that 21 years after taking part in a reality show as a public schoolboy toff, I'm still here. Mm. I used to use the word hanging on, <laughs> clinging on, but actually I feel, I, I feel that I now have put down roots to that fleeting shallow fame. I hate using the word fame, mm -hmm. but I feel that I have actually established myself. And I really do believe it's taken me the 20 years. If you look at other people who've done reality shows since, many people have managed to kind of keep going and then stopped and disappeared and come back. But I've kind of managed to keep it going. And I am really proud of that. I know you're not supposed to, it's not really a very English thing. We're not really supposed to big ourselves up, are we? We're supposed to be really self-deprecating. But I genuinely am proud that I have managed to keep going for 21 years, given how it started. I mean, so you should. This is this thing about this whole English thing. We go along life sort of apologising. And as you said, what you did and the amount of people now consequently who have been on reality shows and who haven't harnessed this. And one of the things I was going to mention is that you were cast as this sort of privileged posh one. And that must have been bloody hard because I know from admiring you for so long, you're very aware of your privilege. And actually many people that I interview are aware of their privilege or their background, but it can be used for a higher purpose. It can be used to make a difference. You can channel your privilege into doing. And I believe that that's exactly what you have done. Everything you say is entirely true. I've kind of had 
I feel that I've got this baggage that comes when you're in the public eye that I do have this posh accent. I was incredibly privileged to have this beautiful childhood. My parents worked super hard to send me to a private school. But privilege doesn't mean you don't understand. Privilege doesn't mean you can't relate. Mm. Privilege doesn't mean you can't have empathy. We're living in polarized times and the left and the right are now kind of these animals. You know, the left would have you think that I've got zero empathy. How could you possibly have ever gone to a private school and actually care about others? You're completely disconnected. You've got no idea how the real world works. Well, I'm the first one to say that I live an incredibly privileged life. And yes, there are many things that I couldn't genuinely say I know what hunger feels like. I couldn't say I know what it feels like to not have enough money and, and the fear of losing the roof over your house. But what I have done in my own way, and it's by no means comparable in any sense of the word, but on some of the journeys I've been on and some of the challenges that I've done, I have experienced those sentiments fleetingly and I have chosen them um, proactively. So that's why I'm really careful with my wording. There is no comparison, but I have experienced fear and I have experienced the risk of losing the roof over my head when I'm on a mountain or running out of food or the fear of falling off. And I think some of those experiences on those journeys have armed a very privileged person with mm -hmm. some sentiments that I would never have got had I just gone through life going mm -hmm. to private members clubs and eating in fine restaurants, which I do. I do both mm -hmm. of those, by the way. And I love, mm -hmm. I love the fact mm -hmm. that I go from one extreme to the other and I'm happy living. It used to really do my head in because, you know, in the early stages, I, I remember I'd go out and I'd be spending three weeks with a remote tribe in the Amazon basin and I'd be living exactly as they did, eating exactly as they did. And I'd come back and I'd go to a Mission Impossible premiere and I'd have a glass of champagne next to Tom Cruise. And it would go from one extreme to the other. And, and I felt guilt and I felt discombobulated. But I think what I've realized since is that you have to have these different experiences in your life. For a long time, I thought I wanted to be a politician, by the way. I'm going way off topic, I know. Yeah, I loved hearing this. For a long time, I thought my destiny would be politics. And the reason I thought it would be politics was that politics should be something you do at the end of your life rather than the beginning of your life. And I don't just mean by age. Let's get rid of life. Career. I think it's something you should do at the end of your career rather than the beginning because you're armed with all of these all of these experiences, whether it's starting mm. businesses, whether it's setups, whether it's going on journeys, whether it's working with the army, it doesn't really matter. But you bring something totally different that just means that you're not a career focused politician, which nowadays is all about the cult of personality anyway. Yes. And what kind of saddens me now is that we're living in these times where if you don't have absolute knowledge about it, get lost. You oh. know, don't bother raising your voice now about COVID because you know nothing about it. Don't bother raising your voice about electric cars. You know nothing about it. I see it every time I touch on any of these on social media, I get told to bugger off because I'm privileged and I know nothing about it. But mm. this is the beauty of life, Holly. And I think you'll get that as well as it should be those experiences, the riches, the difficulties, the failures, the successes that make us who we are and that give us the ability to be better people and therefore share with other people. Castaway basically launched your career and you just went from strength to strength because actually you became most love um, presenter and you, you had TV programmes including Country File, One Man and His Dog, Animal Park and the programmes were so closely connected to nature and the environment and obviously this is an area that you're completely passionate about. Would you say it's been part of your mission 
to enable others to connect and share in that joy of nature and the great outdoors. Do you think that that's what you're going to have given the world? I'd love to say that it's all been planned. This whole journey, uh, working at Condé Nast, going to the island, doing some big challenges, working in telly, that it's all been really carefully orchestrated with a whole team. And I've a bit like a a, a war game. I've got the little pieces and I'm pushing it with a little (laughs) stick. But unfortunately, unfortunately, it's not. I've just winged it. I'm a kind of believer in a mix of destiny, but also the fact that you have the ability to tweak that. I think if you believe in something, I really, really do believe you'll get there. Not just in a sort of spiritual, sort of herbally kind of way, but I I think you have to believe in yourself. Beyond that, you definitely, you'll rise or fall, succeed or fail by the decisions that you make. I think you have to be brave in life. I think you have to embrace failure. The famous quote, if you haven't failed, you haven't been trying hard enough. Mm. Uh, I, I think you have to be brave in the decisions that you make. And I think that you you have to be ambitious. Each person has something that excites them. And for me, travel and adventure always has been something that's excited me. And I think after about 10 years of prolific traveling, and when I say prolific, we're talking probably 100 countries a year. Oh my goodness. Hundreds and hundreds of journeys. Like I couldn't, if you asked me now to go over <laughs> a map and you know, just looking at the map behind you now, Zambia, yeah. I could tell you about 10 different trips I did there. Wow. Same with Namibia, probably 30 in South Africa. I, I did all of this traveling. And then after about 10 years of it, I suddenly started thinking, whoa, 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 what am I doing? Am I just ticking boxes here? And I was running from one adventure to the next, from one journey to the next, from one TV show to the next. And I didn't have time to Mm -hmm. appreciate it, to absorb it, to think about it and dissect it. And actually what I've tried in years subsequently to kind of get to the roots of why I've done all of this, what I've come up with now, especially as a father and, and I work with the United Nations as their patron of the wilderness, is to try and share my passion and my experiences with mountains and jungles and, and oceans and empower people to mm-hmm. work with it. There's this whole notion, if you're an adventurer, you know, I, I call myself an adventurer. I'm kind of trying to wean myself off that because I think it's far more nuanced than that. I, I'd actually prefer the term journeyman mm. because an adventurer, adventurer has kind of tones of those tough folk on telly that it's a battle and you're going to die and you need to stab animals and, and eat them. And no disrespect, they do a brilliant job and they give huge entertainment to everyone. But that's never really been my style. My style has been testing myself and embracing dangerous uh, moments. Mm-hmm. But I've tried to engage with the wilderness and nature with a beautiful kind of symbiotic relationship, like a beautiful dance. Yeah. And for me, I think if we're going to protect this planet, which I think most people have concluded, we probably need to just be a little bit gentler. We need to engage with it. We need to be able to relate to it. And just a simple statistic, like one in eight families don't have any access to outside space, for me is terrible and awful Mm. and should not be the case. So I think, yes, my kind of, I've kind of made it now my, my mission not to work in politics, but instead to try and enable and to encourage and to uplift youngsters to be passionate about this beautiful world of ours and to try and just live a more sympathetic life. 
I love this journeyman title because before you, you know, you had a title professional adventurer. And I, I just did want to touch on one, one that really um, stuck with me. It was when you had this sort of epic adventure where you rode across the Atlantic with James Cracknell. And now this is nearly 3,000 miles of ocean and it took you 47 days. You push yourself totally to the limit. We were there with you physically, emotionally, spiritually. You nearly lost your life. And part of the journey was captured on this BBC programme called Through Hell and High Water. What have these experiences given you in terms of pushing yourself to that limit? Well, here's the thing. When we talk of adventure or adventurers, and, and this word is used a lot now, and I get a lot of emails and letters from people saying, I want to be an adventurer. And I, I kind of, I love that. Let's define what adventure is. The literal description, if you probably look at the dictionary or perhaps what you're thinking right now is adventure is going and climbing a big mountain or mm -hmm. doing an act of daring do that probably involves wearing khaki and uh, <laughs> in some hot country or a really cold country. But for me, adventure has always been something out of the ordinary, something that breaks your system. So quite frankly, right now, going to a restaurant would be a great adventure. <laughs> it would also be <laughs> illegal because we're not allowed to go. But it would be a huge adventure because for the last three, four months, we haven't been allowed to go to adventure. So that would be an adventure. Now, I realize that actually it's not really in the true essence of it. But if you take that, um, that, that sort of headline, that it's just something that tests you and takes you out of your normal comfort zone, then, then I think we start to get a little bit more exciting because it means that just because I've climbed Mount Everest and are extolling the virtues of climbing mountains, I'm not telling people, I'm not going to say to you, Holly, go and climb Everest, but I will say to you, go and climb your Everest. Mm. Life is this complex contradiction of extremes that has kept me on my toes and has sort of continued to boost my confidence, I suppose. Do you think that there is this point in us humans having goals like this? Because we can get caught. And by the way, we're feeling it right now, right? We, we're caught in our homes. We're caught in our little bubble. But isn't that the point in life, the curiosity to challenge our norm? Absolutely. I think we all need motivators and we all need to motivate ourselves. And I think it's very hard to just get up and go for a run every day for no purpose. Mm. And I'm not saying that you have to have a marathon at the end of it. You know, my motivating factor, if we're going to use the literal sense of physicality here, you know, what keeps me running and active is, first of all, I know it's for my mental well-being. I don't do it for mm. physical. I, I, I couldn't care less about six packs and big bulging biceps, by the way. I, I've always seen the body as a, an instrument, not an ornament. For me, it's all about functionality. So for me, when I wake up and I think it's far too cold, I don't want to go for a run, I think about my kids and I think about my daughter who's 11 and almost as tall as me who still likes me to piggyback her. And I think about the <laughs> fact that I don't want to say I can't do it because I yeah. want to be piggybacking her when she's 30 years old, quite frankly. And I don't yeah. want to be that dad that kind of is wheezing and can't do it. No disrespect to those that aren't able to, but my motivating factor has always been I want to be a dad that's fit for purpose. Mm. And if we take that metaphor for life, fit for purpose, let's think of our brains. How do we keep our brains fit for purpose? Well, you need to keep them creative. And we mm. can do that with reading and on, you know, there's, gosh, I mean, we're never, we, I don't think we've lived in a better time when it comes to TV and, and online content as, lot, as much as lots of it's quite 
quite polarized. I actually abstain from the news, but there's lots of other exciting stuff out there. Yeah. And I think too many people, let's bring back the actor's analogy, sit and wait for the agent to call. Mm. It's never going to ring. You have to be out there. You have to show your face. You have to be creative. You have to be bold. You have to risk failure. You have to fail. And that's the only way you're ever really going to succeed in life. And, and if I then go back to all those failures that I had as a child, multi, going to multiple schools, multiple universities, failing my driving test seven times, you know, the list is endless. I would not be the person I am today were it not for those failures, because they're all the sum of my parts. Climbing Everest is a mammoth achievement, and it really is the ultimate human endeavour. And I saw this the photo of you at the summit and literally at the top of the world and your face and an extraordinary feat. Um, I read that it was a childhood dream of yours and a lifelong ambition. You also had a very personal reason for that climb and that it was dedicated to someone very special. Obviously, becoming a dad was a big seminal moment. And, and I think that was a moment in life when I, I abstained from risk and those bigger challenges. But then we, we had uh, the tragedy of, of a stillborn, a little boy called Willem, five years ago now. And it had a profound impact on Marina and I. We've spoken very publicly about it, uh, mainly because I think when you're in the public eye, I think you're either all or nothing. And I think if you share your life, you, you can't just sugarcoat it and give the Hollywood ending. You know, we, we all have our trials and tribulations and we have our sorrows and our sadnesses. And, and for us, it was a profound experience that still shapes us to this day. And for me, I think it was a moment of realization that how fragile life is, a reminder of our mortality. And it was a reminder that as a dad, I didn't just want to be a dad who had done those things, boring Ludo and I in a bike. Oh, did I tell you about when I rode the Atlantic and they roll their eyes and they're like, yes, dad, like 20 times. I kind of realized there was this point where I, I had just become a dad that had done those things and looking at old photos and trying to find the, the videos to show them. And I wanted to be a dad who still does that stuff and inspires them and follows my dreams. And I think losing Willem was also a moment I wanted, I kind of wanted to do it for him as well. I kind of felt this, this little life that was so near and yet so far, I wanted to live for the two of us and embrace life. And I think it, in a weird way, it kind of re-energized my zest for for adventure mm. my zest for life and risk and i wanted to show my children that even aged 45 as a dad of three you can still and you must still follow your dreams and i think as a father which is my the most important role i have in my life i think you have to practice what you preach and you have to teach by example lead by example and and i think that's why everest was quite a profound moving, dangerous, fun, memorable experience. It was amazing. You know, it was, I've done a lot of other cool stuff, but I still think climbing Everest was one of those moments that I will look back on with such happiness and such pride um, mm. because of what it meant beyond just the physicality of climbing to the highest point on earth. Thank you, Ben, for sharing that. And I am sorry for your loss of your little boy. And I think that when you made that promise, I read that you said that you'll live my life brightly. And I thought that that was something so beautiful to say and something that we all need to hold on to. A, a friend of mine has just gone through the same experience um, just recently. And I think it is so important that we do talk about these things openly and honestly. And thank you so much for doing that. I'd love to 
talk about another part of your life, which you've mentioned already. And I've just written a book and it comes out in May and I'm dyslexic as well. So it's my first book. I'm absolutely Congratulations. You know, wrecking it a little bit, I must, I must say. But you've written all these books and one called Up, which was about your Everest experience and another which was released last year called Inspire, which is, I suppose, more reflective in its tone and draws on some of your biggest adventures and the power of time spent in nature and what that's taught you. What would you share with those listening about resilience, strength and optimism and hope that you had to draw on? I think what what I try to encourage people and share with people is that you have to believe in yourself. If there's any doubt, you might as well quit. Believe in yourself and you really are halfway there. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it's amazing how you really do have the power to make the difference between success and failure. I really do Mm -hmm. believe that. Yes, there's many, many other variables in that other half, the other 50% often out of your hands. Can you get the funding? Are you going to have infrastructure in place? Can you get the product to market? All of those things. The first 50% is just believe in yourself. Uh, Listen, it has to be a sensible idea. If I say now I'm going to go to the moon, the chances are it's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. If I, but having said that, if there's a really wealthy listener that's prepared to give me uh, like 50 million, I reckon, I reckon 50 million could almost buy a ticket to it. the moon. So actually it is possible. So do you see what yeah. I mean? So yeah. th- this is what I always say to my kids. Actually, never say never because yes, it might be economics. It might be connections. It might be nepotism, all these things that have become ugly words, but Anything is possible. But first of all, and first and foremost, just believe in what you're doing. If you go in half-heartedly, it's never going to happen. So Everest was a classic example of that. You know, I, I don't want to go into details, but when I climbed Everest, I went with Victoria Pendleton. And I know she had the physical and mental capabilities. I know she did. She's a stronger, we're talking about the double Olympic gold medalist uh, in cycling here. Unbelievable woman, dear friend. And she came to Everest and sadly didn't make it to the top. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of exactly what happened, but suffice to say, and I think she would probably agree that she didn't believe in herself. And this is kind of astonishing from someone who has achieved so brilliantly in every other aspect of her life, but I don't think she believed in herself. And I saw that and I saw how it manifested itself in physical forms with altitude sickness. I firmly believe if she went back to do it again, if she went back with an absolute confidence that she would do it, without doubt she would stand on top and she probably will one day. Without question, as soon as you start doubting and you lose that confidence of belief, it's done. You're not going to succeed. There's always a way to go around that. You know, everyone looks at, not everyone, but a lot of people look at problems just with a front door. And if you mm. can't get in the front door, let, yeah. let's just turn around. But there's windows, you can scale the drain pipes, you can go in the <laughs> back door, you can smash the door down, you could bulldoze the whole thing. Do you see what I mean? There are so many ways to do it, but a lot of people have this inflexibility and you just have to be creative. You have to use the resources you have around you. And I really do believe anything is possible if you really believe in yourself and you put your mind to it. When I was rowing the Atlantic and we capsized halfway across, everything was saying we should probably die now and we're not going to get 
back on track. This is not going to happen. But we had to get out of that. There was no other way. We were still alive after we capsized. We'd lost just about everything. But we had to get out of that mm. that situation. Mm. And I've used that as a template ever since. And, you know, the, mm. the, the, the classic kind of team building exercise, I don't know if you've ever done it, but where you walk on hot coals is a classic example of that, you know, where, where you, you literally walk on fire. I remember the first time I did it, I was like, this, there has to be some smoke and mirrors here. How can this work? But if you believe you can walk on mind over matter, you believe you can walk on those flames and you take your mind to a different place, you, you focus on cool, wet grass and you focus on the fact that you are not going to get burnt. I am not going to get burnt. I'm not going to get burnt. You just walk across these coals and it oh is... Oh my goodness. It's still, I, I still don't really understand how it happens, but I do find it rather amazing, the power of the mind over matter. When I was asked by Penguin to write a new kind of business book, one that brings colour and creativity to life, I was both honoured and daunted. As the world went into lockdown and small businesses faced their greatest challenge in recent history, I put pen to paper. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is a book I'm deeply proud of, having poured my heart and soul into the pages of what I believe is the ultimate small business bible. I hope it provides you with the guidance, support and insights that I wish I'd had at the start of my business journey 20 years ago. From money fears to sharing my biggest mistakes so you don't have to, alongside my ultimate guide to brand and how to listen to your gut instinct. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is packed full of tangible advice alongside colour and creativity. And in a world first, its very own product collection. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is out on the 6th of May. Head to holly.co slash book to pre-order your copy now. I know that you mentioned before that you are a patron of the wilderness, which is another beautiful title. We're about to become a B Corp. I talk about sustainability and we talk about the environment and business and, and the, the fact that this has to be the way. Tell me about how people are feeling potentially at this time powerless. You know, today when I was talking about this divide, you know, we were talking about earlier, I just screamed and we have no planet B. Can we all just stop talking about these almost meaningless points when we have no planet B? And yet I feel like sometimes we can feel helpless when we use these words, sustainability or environment. Is that something that you can tackle to help us feel empowered? I am an optimistic individual. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch Greta Thunberg's uh, documentary on the BBC. I think it's rather beautiful. I can highly recommend that. And the reason is not just because of what she's doing, but it's the power of a tiny voice and therefore no act is too small to have a profound difference. Mm. So if, you know, right now there's this notion that if you dare to put your hair, you know, in this polarized world, if you dare to say you're green, which I do, then I will just be picked up on any shortcomings. Right. So as soon as I do that, I just get loads of abuse online. Well, you fly, I, how did you get to Ukraine to go to Chernobyl? Mm -hmm. How did you get to Iceland? The bet you flew and yet you say you're green. Well, look at the car. So I recognize all of that. So first of all, I think it's, it's important to know your shortcomings, but we need to change society's attitude 
towards the whole debate. Now, you've already raised one problem, which is there's so much bickering about whether it is or isn't happening. Is it happening? Isn't it happening? Are we doing it? Aren't we doing it? Let's forget the debate. Of course it's happening. The scale, okay, that, that can be fought on Twitter. I'll let, I'll let those two mm-hmm. sides debate that. But something is happening. So let's do something about it. What we need to do is to just focus on the positive. So rather than this insistence that anyone who says they're green has to make a 100% change to their life. So this notion that Mm -hmm. 10% of us, let's say, make a 100% change to our lives, which is impossible in the industrialized world. I can't do my job and be 100% green. It's impossible. But rather than 10% of us make a 100% change, why don't 100% of us try to make a 10% change? Now, a lot of people go, well, what's 10% going to do? Look at other nations. Look at what China's doing. Look at the population explosion happening all across Africa. Look at what is happening in India. Look at the power stations being built. But that's it's just an excuse. By criticizing others and picking up other people's shortcomings, you're feeling better about yourself. Mm. Oh, I don't need to do anything because I've just picked up Ben Fogel on saying he's green, but I've seen that he actually has a hybrid, not a pure electric car. Ha! Yeah. Oh, I feel pretty good about myself now because, uh, you know, I picked him up on it. So that's all okay. The planet's going to be fine now. Well, that, yeah. It's just, it's not how it's going to work. So I think my thing is that nothing you do can be too small. The other problem is we're waiting for government, you know, the number of times I'm yes. saying, well, no, we have to wait for the government to act. And then the business the supermarkets saying, no, well, we're waiting for the policy to come from government. And the government is saying, well, the supermarkets are in control. And the supermarkets are saying, well, it's the consumers who decide what we buy and how we package it. So everyone's blaming everyone else. Whereas actually, if we all just come to the table, if we had a beautiful meeting, I know we've got COP coming up in Glasgow, but Quite frankly, we just need to get a couple of the supermarkets. Let's get Tesco's, Lidl, Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Marks and Sparks. Get them together with Gove and a couple of other ministers. Let's get some passionate youngsters, some passionate other folk from business, industry, all around the table and go, right, yeah, this plastic, single-use plastic's a bit stupid, isn't it? Well, we just invented a, a vaccine for COVID in one year when everyone thought it was going to be 10 years. So maybe we could come up with a substitute to single-use plastics that's biodegradable. Do you think we could do that? Yeah. Yeah, let's get a couple of very wealthy businessmen. Let's get the Bransons to give a donation of 10 million if someone comes up. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, yeah. I, do, I think we just need to be creative about what we do. And if we use the measure of COVID and this brilliant vaccine and the way we've vaccinated everyone, which is, you know, it's the one bit about COVID we can chat about with quite with huge pride yes. and confidence. It's astonishing what we've done. Well, let's take that template to the climate crisis and empower people and let's actually start making a change. See, I knew I'd end this podcast just wanting you to go into politics or (laughs) or something. You know, it's just this, why are we so intent in tearing each other down? Why do we live in this sort of blame society where, as you're right, here we are with Ben doing something as you are doing, taking on the patron of the wilderness, and yet you will be berated for all the little bits that you don't do. Um, Now, tell me, if you had to now look at what you would say success is for you, TV presenter, adventurer, but we've now changed that title, an advocate of the great outdoors, looking after our planet, what would you say now, if you look at your next five years, what would success look like to you? Continued happiness. And that's not insinuating that happiness is the only important thing in life, but I do kind of want to wake up each day with a smile rather than a frown. 
And I think as long as I can feel satisfaction that I haven't wasted opportunities, that I haven't let people down, that I've tried my best, that would be my measure of success. I think we need, I mean, it's ironic that this is kind of a, a business podcast and I'm saying that money isn't the symbolism of success, but it isn't. Uh, I've never, ever money believe it or not, is completely unimportant to me. And I, I say that with the caveat that, of course, mm. I want to be able to provide my family with the things that they have. I want to have these beautiful umbrellas behind me and be able to to buy lovely yeah. things wherever I go. That's not nearly as important as the riches of family, the riches of experience, the riches of, of sharing and empowering other people. Ben, I end these interviews with the analogy that life is like being on an epic roller coaster. I do picture yours. You know, you would be wearing khaki trousers, I have to say, but you would have one of your colourful umbrellas you would be holding. When that cart dips to the lowest point, what would you say has been one of your biggest lows? I mean, obviously, you know, the, the tragedy of losing our son, without doubt, I think uh, is is something that is an indelible scar that that will be hard to heal, but actually... Marina, my wife and I have always tried to turn negatives into positives. And we do a huge amount of campaigning now, working for, with charities like Tommy's so that other mothers, other fathers don't have to go through the same experience. So I think that would probably be the low. Totally understandable. And conversely, Ben, I mean, you must have so many to pick from. A high? That's, I mean, that really is a hard one. It almost changes on a daily basis because there are so many extraordinary moments. But I think if I had to just symbolize it in one word, it's fatherhood and having children and the pride I see in those children. They are my absolute everything. It's getting to know them as they've grown up and it's the pride of fatherhood through this extraordinary journey, which is a roller coaster in itself. But the utter pride I have in in my children, these these two little beings that uh, we're helping to mould and shape and eventually release into the world, I think for me is without doubt the high in my life. It's beautiful, Ben. It's that time of the podcast. Thank you so much, firstly, for sharing so much with us today. And I, I, I knew I'd come off this, want you to A, go into politics, but then I want to book every adventure. I, I'm going to push myself. I'm going to get on my own Everest. I'm going to work out what that is. Um, but I'm going to ask you now to read out a letter to your younger self that you've prepared earlier. And I don't know what you're going to say, but I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of myself and all of those who are listening, because you have a very special place in our heart. Oh, well, thank you very much. So this is probably a slightly different letter to ones that people have read before, because this is a letter that I, I actually wrote. And I actually wrote it to my children, mm. but it could have been written to me. It was a just-in-case letter that I wrote when I went up Everest. So I hid it and I hoped that my children would never read it because uh, mm -hmm. I hoped that uh, nothing would happen serious enough that would necessitate that. But... When I read it, and I read it just before this, I think it's exactly the letter I would have written to myself. I think that's why I wrote it to my children. Dear Ben, life's about the journey, not the destination. Live it brightly and live it wisely. Don't waste it, not one single day. Add life to your days, not days to your life. Dream, dare, and do. Live for the now, not the then. Be spontaneous, go with your heart. Instinct is often right. Take criticism on the chin and use it usefully. Life is there to complete, not to compete. Although it will sometimes feel like a competition, don't get swept up by it. It's not a race. Confide, don't divide. 
Be caring and considerate. Try and be the shepherd, not the sheep. Remember, you aren't just a face in the crowd. You are unique. Your personality will be shaped and moulded by the company you keep and the experiences you have. Be comfortable with who you are. Don't try and be what others want or expect you to be. Listen, be curious and learn. People will judge you, but don't let that judgment define you. Don't let failure defeat you. Insecurity will creep up on you throughout your life. Try not to listen to it. Be confident, but don't be arrogant. Give and share. People will be outrageous and provocative. Try not to be outraged or provoked. Some days you'll feel a little down. The highs and lows are human nature. Your life should be filled with light and shade. It's these ups and downs that remind us what's important in life. Be brave, take risks, and live your life with a smile. Wow. What a letter. What a letter. I was just picturing... Yeah. Gosh, Ben, thank you so much for sharing that with us. My pleasure. And thank you for inspiring us to believe in grit, I suppose, and determination and positivity and your optimism is infectious and and it makes us all feel that anything is possible. So I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Ben. Well, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Before you go, don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 